0: Welcome to TopCast, and to a regular episode. This is Chapter 7 of The Fabric of Reality, and it's going to serve mainly as an introduction to the chapter proper. Uh, I expect, however, it's going to go for well over half an hour, even though it's just an introduction, because the majority of the chapter is a dialogue, a fictional dialogue between David and the so-called crypto-inductivist, the person who is trying to argue for the gap that is left by the fact that knowledge can't be, scientific knowledge isn't able to be justified in some way, shape or form. And David presents the counter-argument to that. It's nice for me to be doing a regular episode recently, and I don't normally say these things during a regular episode as to what else is going on with my podcast, but recently what's been happening is I've been doing unusual episodes. So yesterday I recorded a response episode, a response podcast, it's also available on YouTube as a video, to one of Sam Harris's recent podcasts that he did uh, that was titled The End of Global Order which was a very pessimistic take on some things that are happening now that a particular author is extrapolating off into the distant future, and of course, prophesying about how everything is going to get far, far worse for us all. So have a look for that one in the podcast feed. And just before that, I released a video that I titled Origins. This video was a discussion about the first set of images, five images released by the James Webb Space Telescope. The new telescope that's up there in orbit, 1.5 million kilometers it is away from the Earth, orbiting the sun and collecting data, evidence, photographs, images about the deeper and deepest regions of space and bringing back some spectacular stuff. And what I've tried to do there is to fuse the worldview that is summarized by what I speak about in top cast here and what is in the beginning of infinity and the writings of David Deutsch more broadly trying to fuse these two things together what does something like the space telescope have to do with knowledge creation and optimism and all of that great stuff well there's a discussion there and hopefully the video is quite entertaining and because of the images of the James Webb space telescope spectacular as well so have a look at that one And I've also been doing live streaming on YouTube and they get recorded and uploaded automatically. They're very little work for me. People have been asking me questions, so they also serve as AMAs and I've been doing pre-recorded AMAs as well. And then finally, there is my Substack newsletter, which also is a separate podcast in and of itself. So I've been busy recently and this is... The next episode, all about the fabric of reality. But also in the works, and what will probably come out before this one is my discussion of the next chapter of Steven Pinker's book, which is primarily focused upon Bayes' theorem, Bayesian reasoning, so called Bayesian reasoning. And so I talk at length, at great length, all about that particular chapter as well as what I see as the deep misconceptions for epistemology that come out of a too serious reading of the capacity of Bayes' theorem to really do much at all when it comes to either the creation or the validation of knowledge, let's say. All right, without further ado, and with no more introduction, let's get into an introduction to Chapter 7, A Conversation About Justification, or... David and the Crypto Inductivists from The Fabric of Reality. And before I get to the readings, I have to mention that at the beginning of the audio book, which is The Fabric of Reality, well worth picking up, David Deutsch himself does an introduction, well worth the price of the book itself. And what he says there is that of the things that he would change in the book were he writing it now, would be the use of terminology in this particular chapter. Because David is not a justificationist. David does not endorse justificationism. And so the whole point of the chapter is to reject justificationism. That's where he's coming from. However, he is speaking in the language of people, the overwhelming majority of philosophers and scientists, and just the common man, who speak this way, who talk about Justificationism and how things are justified. So he has trouble trying to convey the ideas using their language so that we are speaking a common language. That's always the hard part in philosophy and science to try and understand exactly what the other person is saying. They can be speaking English, they can be speaking your native tongue, but that doesn't mean you've really got a common language. There is still a layer of translation that goes on because you're interpreting one another. There is no such thing as an unambiguous language, David says. Or as Popper likes to say, it is impossible to speak in such a way as to not be misunderstood. And so all of these caveats I am putting here because David himself is saying that he would rephrase things were he writing this chapter now. But I don't think we can blame him. I don't think we can blame him because he's a pioneer of a kind, trying to bring these ideas to the masses Now, Popper, of course, was their first in many, many ways. But even Popper, you can see, if you go to his first major work, which was called The Logic of Scientific Discovery, it's the one book that I typically do not recommend to people because it's long, it's interesting if you're interested in the philosophy of science, but it's highly technical, it's laborious, and it is, in particular, written in the language of philosophers of his era. So he knows his audience, his peers, other philosophers, all of whom are inductivists of a kind, all of whom believe in this justified, true belief, conception of knowledge. So he is very much speaking to other philosophers, writing in a technical way, and so trying to bring people along with him to explain new ideas, in a new way, new ways of understanding what science is, what knowledge is, and how it's created. So how do you do that, given that people have never heard this stuff before? Well, you're going to talk about things like confirmation and corroboration and being justified, verifying things or not verifying things. You're introducing this new concept of falsification and refutation You're trying to say that knowledge is never justified. You can't prove things as true. All you can do is conjecture. This is very new and counterintuitive. Look, it is decades since. There has been a lineage of people following in the tradition of Popper ever since. And we are still, still having great difficulty conveying these ideas. True though they are. But you can say this about any true idea. Try to teach someone Newtonian physics for the first time. I mean, it's been centuries. So, of course, people still learning this stuff find it difficult. Try then teaching them special relativity, then general relativity, much less quantum theory. Anything new that is trying to get at reality has nuance to it, has a way of using language which might be different, even though the words sound familiar to people. All of this stuff comes to bear on any technical explanation of an area of expertise, so to speak, an area of knowledge, a way of understanding reality and the world. Epistemology and the philosophy of science, our business here and our specific business in this chapter here, is absolutely no different. Except that maybe it's more difficult still, because at least when people go into something like Learning areas of physics, like learning areas of general relativity, let's say, their mind is really open because they think, well, this stuff works. We know that there's technology out there based upon this. So I am willing to grant certain assumptions just so I can move forward and understand the thing as a whole so that then when I finally get to the point where I say I understand it, I can look back and realize all the misconceptions I had. This is often not the way in which people approach things like epistemology. In my experience, someone will say they're interested in epistemology, interested in having the discussion about Popper's ideas or David Deutsch's ideas, but they go into the discussion thinking, but I already know how knowledge works. I know that I can be certain of particular things. I know that you can be justified, that you can prove things, that the evidence shows some particular thing happens to be true, that there is a matter-of-fact about the science which is settled, all of that stuff is baggage that people accumulate through their schooling and education. And so then when you try to present them with the ideas that much of that is completely and utterly misconceived, you have great difficulty. Whereas someone coming to something like general relativity has no preconceived notions. Or insofar as they do, they understand all of these physicists, they're experts out there, and they all agree that general relativity is the explanation of gravity. So let me also gain that knowledge and I'm willing to go along for the ride to try and understand it. Not so with epistemology to the same extent because philosophers broadly speaking don't agree with Popper and because they don't agree with Popper why should I? (laughs) If this Brett Hall fellow or David Deutsch uh, are telling me that this is the way in which knowledge is created but they are a slim minority view amongst the intellectual community Why should they be trusted over anyone else? And again, even that is the wrong question. Because we don't think that trust is actually a way in which you assess the validity of ideas. We don't judge the source of an idea. We instead try to error correct. It's a whole worldview. It's a particular epistemology. It's a way of understanding stuff and creating knowledge. And so this is the hill we have to climb. And this is the hill we're about to climb today. So in saying all that, that now is an introduction to David Deutsch's introduction to The Fabric of Reality in the audiobook, where he says that he regrets using the word justification and justified so often, particularly in this chapter. Now, I readily forgive him for this because I think that, again, he is meeting the opponents halfway, that pedagogically speaking, in terms of trying to help people learn these ideas, You have to bring them with you by granting the words that they're using. As we say, there's no such thing as an unambiguous language. Now, writing today, uh, in light of what was written back then with the fabric of reality, the fabric of reality was like a step required in order to bring us to the point where we could understand the beginning of infinity. And so this was the first step for many, many people of taking them out of their slumber of thinking justified true belief, for example, is the way in which knowledge works. And that induction is required in order to somehow or other give us confidence in the theories of science. Or that induction, indeed, is able to generate theories of science, all of which is misconceived. But you have to start somewhere. And so people are typically starting at that point. And so chapter 7 here is going to use those words, the terms of the people who have the misconceptions, the traditional view, and I think the way in which to interpret this is David is holding your hand and bringing you along through the mire of misconception, but sometimes has to use the words of those people who endorse the false theories, because that's almost everyone. Here, I want to sort of give props to Wittgenstein, which I don't often do. But it's a, it's a way of thinking about areas of philosophy that I think are useful what he said, what Wittgenstein said, Ludwig Wittgenstein said of his own philosophy, because his basic thesis was, philosophy as a discipline is useless. It doesn't contribute anything to knowledge. All you need is things like mathematics and science, and philosophy itself doesn't actually solve any problems. And this was a great schism between the people who follow Wittgenstein and the people who follow Popper. Popper thinks there are genuine philosophical problems. Wittgenstein thinks it's all word games. So there is this deep conflict between these two ideas. And then, of course, people would object to Wittgenstein and say, well, hold on, you are doing philosophy. How can you say all of philosophy is useless? And he granted it, and he had a very clever way of granting it. He said his own philosophy is kind of like a ladder, a ladder that you use to climb out of a deep well, the well-being philosophy. Once you've climbed out of the well using the ladder... You can do away with the latter. You no longer have any need for the latter. So once you've understood his philosophy, you understand that all of philosophy, including his own, is completely useless. So get on with your life and just do science. Now, I disagree with all of that, quite obviously. People who don't think that philosophy is important are liable to say things like, well, the evidence shows incontrovertibly X. You can't debate the science because the evidence shows. Not realising that, for example... Evidence needs to be interpreted. And that's not a matter of science, that's a matter of philosophy. That The claim that evidence needs to be, interp- to be interpreted, that evidence doesn't speak for itself, but rather many scientists and others who reject the importance of philosophy will make claims like this, that all you need to do is to extrapolate the data and then you've got a trend and you're doing science. That's not science. Science is about explanation. But that claim that science about it is about explanation is itself philosophical. So we have a problem in philosophy. Popper was right. Is science about just predicting stuff? Is that all it's about? Or is it about explanation? That's a philosophical problem. The solution is it's about explanation because you can't make predictions without explanations anyway. So anyone who's making the opposite case is already trying to pull them up and themselves up by their bootstraps and they have no bootstraps because there is no way of predicting stuff without a pre-existing explanation. Okay, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Popper wins the argument, but Wittgenstein had a good quip. Use certain philosophies to climb out of the well. And so what I want to say here is that with chapter seven, it's kind of like a ladder to be used to climb out of the well of justificationism. And so the rungs of the ladder will now and again include the word justified and justification. And David objects to it. So already we can concede David agrees that he 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 said he would avoid the use of these words. And so I'm going to highlight some uses of the word where I think you could get away with it and other areas where I think you might not want to get away with it, where you'd want to say something different or the word justified is simply superfluous. You can just do away with it. But what David says in the audio book in the introduction is words to the effect that you need to interpret in this chapter the use of the word justified as kind of a moral or methodological claim about what should be done in other words a normative claim so if something is justified it's not justifying something as true or justifying something as probably true that's the error of justificationism but when david says in this chapter that something is justified what he means is that you should use the best explanation should okay should you're justified in using the best explanation and that's a reasonable use of the word justified the whole chapter is about this idea that there are these two people on the top of the Eiffel Tower, David and the Crypto Inductivist, and they're having this debate about why one shouldn't jump off the Eiffel Tower. After all, if you can't justify as true the theory that if you do jump off, you're going to hit the ground, okay general relativity or Newtonian gravity or whatever it else that allows you to make that prediction. If you're not justified in thinking it's true, then there's no reason not to jump off and just think you're going to float to the ground. Isn't that the way that science works? Well, no, it's not. You're justified in not jumping off the Eiffel Tower because the best explanation is theories of gravity that we have that predict you're going to hit the ground. Not justified as true, but justified in following the best explanation. What's the alternative? Not follow the best explanation? And in fact, follow a bad explanation like you're going to float to the ground. There's no explanation there. What is the mechanism that would allow you to float to the ground? We don't need to justify as true the idea that if you jump, you're going to fall to the ground. It's not 100% absolutely certain uh, whatever level of confidence you want to put on this thing, that if you jump off the Eiffel Tower, you're going to hit the ground. After all, we can always imagine ridiculous scenarios like immediately where you thought you were jumping off into empty air, that someone had put a very fine net beneath you that you couldn't see and as soon as you jumped, you hit the net safely and you never hit the ground. There could be all sorts of reasons of extremely low likelihood (laughs) that you can imagine that would mean that you didn't hit the ground. So it's not absolutely certain. Things might not be justified, true, but that's not important. All of these exceptions to the reasons why you wouldn't hit the ground are completely able to be ignored because you have a best good explanation general relativity that predicts anything leaping off the eiffel tower is going to accelerate at 9.8 meters per second squared towards the ground or in fact not accelerate it's general relativity but you get my meaning you're going to hit the ground the ground and you are going to come into contact you're going to be dead are you justified in thinking that's true no are you justified in relying upon the best explanation Yes, so that's the way in which we're going to understand the word justified here. Now, all of that is extremely technical inside baseball to some extent. Epistemology; these are debates within uh, Popperian circles that have been had about the use of particular words. But why we're we getting hung up on words, I don't know. That's very Wittgensteinian. Okay, we can just explain the ideas. Explain the ideas without worrying too much about what words people use because all words have ambiguity as we've already said you know it it reminds me a little one more final thing reminds me a little of this word conjecture or guess all knowledge is conjectural and so we say it's been guessed which is true from what we understand now about Hyperion epistemology knowledge is conjectural but every single claim that you can make is a guess as well So what makes the difference between a conjecture like general relativity or evolution by natural selection or uh, the movement of tectonic plates or how quasars work or what the ultimate cause of the COVID-19 virus was? Whatever the conjectures are that are out there, they don't all stand on equal footing. The conjecture that the curvature of space-time is what is the explanation of gravity and gives the illusion of a force of gravity, is conjectural. It's a guess. But it is one which has survived many, many tests, and there is nothing else superior to it. Other rivals have been refuted. It's the only one left standing. Currently, all experimental evidence is consistent with it. That doesn't prove it true. But it means... It can do something that no other rival has been able to do. But we still call it conjectural knowledge. It's a conjecture. It's a guess. But this word guess clearly is labeling something like that, as well as something like Newton's theory of gravity, which is already known to be false and has been refuted by Eddington's experiment. And of course, not merely Eddington's experiment, but any number of things that can only be explained these days by General relativity. Well, in fact, of course, gravity can only be explained, properly conceived, by general relativity. So there's that. But if the word guess is to label that, and the word guess is to label Newtonian gravity, already refuted, and the word guess is to label something like, well, I think gravity is just caused by the fact that the Earth loves the objects on it and that's why they're attracted to it and they tend to fall towards it, there is a force of love, not a force of gravity. Well, that guess, that guess, utterly uncoupled from reality, still counts as a guess, wrong though it is, Uh, you know, explanationless though it is. So this word guess, I mean, maybe we'll be looking back. The epistemology descendants in the Papyrian tradition a hundred years from now might very well look back to today and go, look at the misconceptions these people were using back then. They were using these words conjecture and guess to label a similar kind of a thing. Now we know better. Now we know what we should be saying in these situations. An explanation is actually this. It's not really a guess, it's something else. Now, I would say right now that it's a guess. It's really a guess of a kind. But I can only rely upon the best knowledge I have at any given time. I can come up with other ideas, but they're not better than what I know at the moment. I wish they were. Then I could be popular, but I'm not. I'm just communicating the ideas. And if I do think of something that I genuinely think by my lights and after having consulted other people and tested it against reality and tested it with conversations with other people, if then I figure out that, okay, well, how we can make some further improvements on Popper and further improvements on Deutsch, then I will do so. But there's no urgency for this. I don't feel compelled to try and do this. At the moment, I don't see any particular problems that need to be solved by doing this, by changing our language. But justification is one of these words where we've learned better about how to explain these concepts, and it's going to become clear in this chapter. But again, as I say, I don't blame Popper for the way in which he wrote the logic of scientific discovery. He needed to persuade the people that were important to the project of trying to understand how science works, namely other philosophers, colleagues, that kind of thing, people who are going to spread the word. He did as well as he could and he refined his ideas in subsequent books. And so the subsequent books are a far better read than what the earlier ones were. I think even he would agree with that. I don't know. But, I'm, I'm, you know, your first work is always going to be written for a particular audience and be grappling with misconceptions. And trying to pull people out of the misconceptions requires you to at least explain what the misconceptions are in the language that people understand. So this is why Chapter 7 is written in this way. And looked at through the lens of the beginning of infinity – which only exists because of the fabric of reality, we can see that there are subtle differences and ways of expressing things that only in light of the beginning and infinity does the fabric of reality look in this sense, dated in terms of the terminology, but not the central ideas. So that's a long preamble. Now I'm going to get into the reading. (laughs) David begins the chapter with a quote from Karl Popper. And Karl Popper said, quote, I think that I have solved a major philosophical problem, the problem of induction, End quote. Let's begin with David. David says, quote, As I explained in the preface, this book is not primarily a defense of the fundamental theories of the four main strands. It is an investigation of what those theories say and what sorts of reality they describe. That is why I do not address opposing theories in any depth. However, there is one opposing theory namely common sense, which reason requires me to refute in detail wherever it seems to conflict with what I am asserting. Hence, in Chapter 2, I presented a root-and-branch refutation of the common sense idea that there is only one universe. In Chapter 11, I shall do the same for the common sense idea that time flows, or that our consciousness moves through time. In Chapter 3, I criticised inductivism, the common sense idea that we form theories about the physical world by generalising the results of observations, and that we justify our theories by repeating those observations. I explained that inductive generalisation from observations is impossible, and that inductive justification is invalid. I explained that inductivism rests upon a mistaken idea of science as seeking predictions on the basis of observations rather than as seeking explanations in response to problems end quote pausing there my reflection now you can see what i'm going to say here i guess if you're a long-time listener so much of the beginning of infinity is being prefaced here and it's easy to miss but he is david is highlighting right there the genuine purpose of science it's not about primarily prediction and prediction from observations which have been generalised from what has happened in the past. That's not what science is about. Science is about explanations. Now, seeking those explanations and finding them, that's the hard part, because we have to come up creatively with how to account for the world. But once we've done that, with a grand theory of some way, a, a, a story we tell about the mechanisms, the causes, the effects, all of the things that are possible in the world and not possible in the world, what are ruled in and ruled out. Perhaps from that, some of that, especially in physics or chemistry and the physical sciences, maybe if you're lucky, then you can really control your variables. Then perhaps if you know that people aren't going to get involved, you might just be able to make a prediction. You might be able to derive some claim about the future or the past or even the present from that good explanation But that's not the purpose of science, that's just a happy, fortunate result of your main project, which was to understand reality. So lucky for you, out of that understanding comes the capacity to sometimes make a prediction in particular circumstances. (laughs) Now, I'm qualifying all that because so much of science isn't about the predictions. It really isn't. In fact, sometimes science says things are unpredictable. Whole areas of biology, unpredictable. You can't know what the mutation is going to be on the genetic code. It could be anything. That's just the way evolution works. It's blind. It throws up the unpredictable, the inherently unpredictable. When you're making distant forecasts about the future, people get involved and their choices get involved and they create knowledge and the creation of knowledge is unpredictable, causing their choices to be inherently unpredictable. Not determined by the prior state of the universe in such a way that you can make a prediction. So that can't be the purpose of science rather often, even if you have a good scientific theory. It often doesn't allow you to make this distant prediction about what's going to happen to the Earth 10 or 1,000 years from now, because people will have done stuff that's going to change whatever your prediction is from your current best scientific explanation is, which might very well be overturned any time between the next 10 and 1,000 years. Okay, so let's keep on going. David says, quote, I also explained, following Popper, how science does make progress, by conjecturing new explanations and then choosing between the best ones by experiment. All this is largely accepted by scientists and philosophers of science. What is not accepted by most philosophers is that this process is justified. Let me explain. End quote. So there we have the first use of the word justified. So what David has just said is, quote, what is not accepted by most philosophers is that this process is justified, end quote. All I would change about that would be something like him saying, what is not accepted by most philosophers is that this process is the best explanation of how science works or the only known explanation of how science works. There are no rivals to it. Whatever way you want to put it. It's not justified in the sense of being justified as true. But we can interpret this use of the word justified as saying that this process is what you should follow if you want to produce good explanations. If you want to actually achieve the aim of science, of understanding the world, of comprehending things and solving problems. That's the sense in which it's justified. Not justified as true, but justified as being the thing you should do. Methodologically, this is the the way in which things work. That's all that means. David goes on, first prefacing it by saying, quote, Let me explain. Science seeks better explanations. A scientific explanation accounts for our observations by postulating something about what reality is like and how it works. We deem an explanation to be better if it leaves fewer loose ends such as entities whose properties are themselves unexplained, requires fewer and simpler postulates, is more general, meshes more easily with good explanations in other fields, and so on. End quote, just pausing there. There's an interesting just addition I'd put on that, which is, again, and this is directly from David Deutsch, where he says, just there, a scientific explanation accounts for our observations by postulating something about what reality is like. So when he says that about what reality is like, he's invoking the things that you don't see. So what reality is like usually includes a whole bunch of unseen phenomena. And the way in which you can determine which of the unseen phenomena is real or not is by the scene. The scene of your observations. You look at what's going on in the, with the sun. You take measurements of the amount of light. You figure out how fast the earth is going around the sun that tells you about the mass of the sun you can tell the rate at which energy is being produced from the sun given its mass and you constrain what processes could possibly be causing this amount of energy and you rule out something like well it's chemical burning it's combustion which is the only other fire that we know of and you say well we've got to come up with something better and eventually you end up with nuclear fusion nuclear fusion reactions have to be powering that sun you can't see the nuclear fusion reactions impossible number one they're so far away they're deep in the core of the sun nothing could actually get there they involve the nuclei of hydrogen atoms the smallest uh, nuclei of all single protons being bashed together to form helium that can't be seen it's the unseen but It's something, we're postulating something about what reality is like. Reality is like that. That's what's really going on inside of the sun, to some approximation. Are there things, are there mysteries there? Are there going to be problems that arise with that? I would say no doubt there will be. Eventually, an observation from the sun will be inconsistent with something we know about the rate of reactions. Who knows? Maybe in the center, there's more than merely hydrogen going on there. Maybe there's something else. I don't know. Maybe the triple alpha process actually begins much earlier. Okay, This is getting to the technical astrophysical details. Who knows what could be found? But I would be far more surprised were nothing found over the next century with respect to what we understand about solar nuclear physics, s- solar nuclear, stellar nucleosynthesis, than if there were not something found. I'd be far more surprised were something not found Then, if something was found, something new was found, an observation inconsistent with that theory that I just gave you about what's going on in the sun with the fusion, the PP chain, the so-called PP chain, the proton protons being bashed together to make helium, or the CNO cycle, where carbon, nitrogen, oxygen are used to do basically the same thing, the outcome being uh, helium being produced from... Protons being fused together. I can readily imagine someone coming along and overturning Fred Hoyle's, you know, the conception of how all of this stuff works, which has remained relatively unchanged for decades. So I'd be surprised if that stands in exactly the same form for for centuries. I would expect that someone clever will find wrinkles with it, errors with it, big or small. Okay, let's keep on going. David writes, quote, But why should a better explanation be what we always assume it to be in practice, namely the token of a truer theory? Why for that matter should a downright bad explanation, one which has none of the above attributes, say, necessarily be false? There is indeed no logically necessary connection between truth and explanatory power. A bad explanation, such as solipsism, may be true, Even the best and truest available theory may make a false prediction in particular cases, and those might be the very cases in which we rely on the theory. No valid form of reasoning can logically rule out such possibilities or even prove them unlikely. But in that case, what justifies our relying on our best explanations as guides to practical decision-making? More generally, whatever criteria we use to judge scientific theories, how could the fact that a theory satisfied those criteria today possibly imply anything about what will happen if we rely on the theory tomorrow, end quote. Yeah, so we we don't prove as true things in science. We tend not to prove things at all. That's not the metric we're explaining stuff. Bad explanations are to a penny something like solipsism, the idea that maybe only you exist and you're just dreaming everything into reality. Maybe that's true, it's a bad explanation because it can be infinitely varied in subtle ways. Maybe it's just you and your best friend That are dreaming everything into reality maybe it's everyone on earth dreaming everything into reality everyone but one person dreaming everything into reality you can infinitely vary this okay it's a it's a single computer it's two computers it's one computer inside of another computer simulating the universe it's an infinite number of computers gets a countably infinite number of computers it's an uncountably infinite number of computers name your solipsistic idea that base reality is different to just realism physical reality exists Okay, we're being deceived by the, the demon. These are solipsistic arguments. They're infinitely varied, and that's what makes them a bad explanation. A bad explanation by the terms of easily varied, swap out one computer for 10 computers if we're all living in a simulation. Who cares? It doesn't make any difference. But it makes a huge difference to the good explanation of, for example, the sun is producing the energy that it does by fusion power and that particular reaction that's going on is typically regarded as a majority of PP chain reactions hydrogen nuclei directly colliding with hydrogen nuclei to produce heavier forms of hydrogen and eventually ending up with helium-4 nuclei, which eventually is the only product left. Once all the hydrogen is consumed, then the sun expands and the core heats up and you end up with a triple, triple alpha reaction in a reaction of something called the helium flash. And so on it goes. There's a good explanation. I can't swap out protons for electrons in that situation. I can't change the hydrogen for carbon. I can't change the helium for nitrogen. This is a hard-to-vary explanation. I can't say there's more than the required number of protons in the PP chain to produce the reaction required. I can't say it's fission rather than fusion. Hard to vary. Every single component of the good explanation serves a purpose, unlike solipsism, where no particular version is a good explanation. No particular version is a good explanation. It's all the same. Whether you're dreaming stuff into reality or the demon is deceiving you or it's a simulation or you're stuck in a cave, whatever it happens to be, these are bad explanations, easily varied. And that's that's what we got from the beginning of infinity. And what you can see here, it's already there in seed form in the fabric of reality. But here David is wondering, well, well, his opponents rather are wondering, wondering asking the question, If we can't justify the theory true today, how can we possibly rely on it tomorrow? If we don't know it's true today, why should you rely on this thing tomorrow? I think it's just a silly question, but that's what philosophers ask and they still ask it today and this is what Bayesians are worried about and various other people. Well, if you don't know it's true or you're confident it's true or you think it's probably true, for what possible reason could you rely on this theory? You have to have a reason for justifying the theory is true. It actually never comes up in real-life science, right? You either have an explanation or you don't. And rather often, if you're doing real science, if you're solving problems, you don't have an explanation. That's your whole problem to begin with. You've got to come up with an explanation. And once you come up with one, you're not going to justify it as true. You're going to test it. And it survives the test where you've got nothing else to fall back on. You better use that theory in order to continue to solve problems or you've got nothing. But as for justifying as true, this is philosophical navel-gazing, it, it, it doesn't solve any problem to, to go down this road, uh, taking up too much intellectual energy to even discuss the problem. But some people need to be pulled out of it. I want to save the potential philosophers and philosophers now and scientists now who are wasting their time writing books and delivering lectures and trying to educate people and teaching cohorts of students about this rubbish because it's a waste of brain power when they could be doing other stuff doing important stuff, solving actual problems rather than learning misconceptions. It really is, for a popperian who understands how knowledge is created, it really is like generation upon generation of people being taught creationism when you know Darwinism is out there, neo-Darwinism is out there. That's what it's like. So why wouldn't you do something? Why, why was Darwin and Haldane so animated about trying to persuade people of evolution by natural selection? Why was it important to people to try and win that argument, to explain stuff? Because people were wasting their time. Problems needed to be solved. There was important biology to be done. And if people are wasting their time, trying to better understand how creationism could work by by inventing variations of it, like intelligent design. The, the, The real biologists know that this is all completely misconceived and a waste of intellectual power, a waste of humanity. And in the same way, we want to save people from inductivism and versions of it, like the modern intelligent design version called Bayesian epistemology. We want to save them from it because if only they took all of that energy and effort and put it into genuine creation of knowledge, which is optimistic and conjectural and allows for the open-ended stream of knowledge creation so that we can become the hub in the universe where the beginning of infinity really begins, as David Deutsch explains, then we need to help people learn this stuff, persuade them that their present worldview is mired in misconception and they're being held back. That's the other thing. You don't want people to be held back, to be perpetually confused, not understanding why things aren't working, and rejecting Popper out of hand because there are so many people out there, prominent people out there, who just detest the philosopher for reasons that still escape people, possibly because Popper didn't like academic philosophy and philosophers. He didn't have kind things to say at times about the the entire project that they were engaged in because it was a waste of time. As I'm speaking now, it doesn't sound kind. But what else can you do (laughs) when you just see children, young students, university people being indoctrinated with the wrong ideas? It's exactly like the feeling rationalist people have when they say that it's a waste of intellectual power for so many people to be taught creationism, young earth creationism, yeah it is they, they should learn something better but the adults don't know better And so this is the situation we're in where the philosophers don't know better the scientists don't know better and, and, and perhaps the Papyrians sometimes sound arrogant as perhaps I do, we've got the answers but we do, what else can you do how else can you behave when you have the answers? Uh, I think generally we're, we're we're pretty kind, fun people. By the way, <laughs> when we do explain this stuff, <laughs> I'm not berating people. And if no one wants to hear this, they don't have to hear this. Yeah, I'm it's not, like, it's not like you have to tune into my podcast. <laughs> okay, let's um keep on going. David is wondering, you know, how can we rely on the theory tomorrow if the theory today isn't justified? He says, "Quote: This is the modern form of the problem of induction." Most philosophers are now content with Popper's contention, that new theories are not inferred from anything, but are merely hypotheses. They also accept that scientific progress is made through conjectures and refutations, as described in chapter 3, and that theories are accepted when their rivals are refuted, and not by virtue of numerous confirming instances. They accept that the knowledge obtained in this way tends, in the event, to be reliable. The problem is, They do not see why it should be. Traditional inductivists tried to formulate a principle of induction, which said that confirming instances made a theory more likely, or that the future will resemble the past, or some such statement. They also tried to formulate an inductive scientific methodology, laying down rules for what sorts of inferences one could validly draw from data. They all failed, for the reasons I have explained, but even if they had succeeded in the sense of constructing a scheme that could be followed successfully to create scientific knowledge, this would not have solved the problem of induction as it is nowadays understood. For in that case, induction would simply be another way of choosing theories, and the problem would remain of why those theories should be a reliable basis for action. In other words, philosophers who worry about this problem of induction are not inductivists in the old-fashioned sense. They do not try to obtain or justify any theories inductively. They do not expect the sky to fall in, but they do not know how to justify that expectation. End quote. Yes, and so modern-day Bayesians who I encounter, uh, they, they do tend to accept this idea that you can refute theories. Now, I still don't understand how, and you speak to them, and of course. Number one, They're typically not using Bayes' theorem. That's the first thing. Uh, Insofar as they are, that is the very rare exception to the rule. People will call themselves Bayesians, but never actually employ Bayes' theorem in assessing, actually calculating the probability or likelihood of a particular theory. But insofar as they do, they accept that a refutation takes the probability of the truth of the theory to zero. I don't know how that happens. I don't think they do either, but they, they accept refutation. But they do think that confirming instances are a thing, that the more often you observe something happening, the more confident you can be. And that seems to be common sense to them. Maybe it is common sense to a certain person. You know, you see something happen three times in a row, four times in a row, five times in a row. Well, then you should expect it. It's the sun rising kind of thing. Okay, you've seen the sun rise on you know five occasions before you expect the sun to rise tomorrow or or ever since you were born you've seen the sun rise and so you continue to think the sun's going to rise and of course the whole ravens thing or the swans whatever you've seen uh, white swans forever so you assume all swans are white therefore you know why should you expect a black swan these trope examples are the ones that can tend to crop up but of course you know it's like the 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 gambler's long run fallacy you know you're flipping a coin and you know it's 10 heads in a row do you expect the 11th head to be heads knowing it's a fair coin well that's the thing do you know it's a fair coin all of this stuff are problems for bayesians but not problems for papyrians who want good explanations and not merely predictions inductivists are the same. Well, Bayesians are inductivists. That's what they are. They seek predictions, that they see that the purpose of science is about being able to make a prediction. They're looking at observations. They're focused on observations, on the evidence, on trying to confirm the evidence as being true or probably true, indicating a trend that is likely more or less, and therefore whether the trend can continue, and therefore they've got graphs, and it all looks very scientific. When you speak to Bayesians and when you look at their presentations, they have lovely graphs, lots of data, and, and, and so they're can they they're, they're ruling things in and out on the basis of confidence, number of observations, so on and so forth. But in real-life science, what we're looking for is creative conjectures, grand explanations, hard to come by, accounts of the world, stories we tell. When I say story, I don't mean fictional story. I mean a word, words in natural language that invoke things that really exist out there in reality, the, the causal links between them, uh, the relationships between them, I should say, and why what is happening is happening. Why? And then from that you might get a prediction. You might be able to talk about trends and things, but that, 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 that's a side point. That's a derivative thing, not the central part of the philosophy of science, of science, of epistemology. It just isn't. This is why induction is not a thing. Merely observing stuff. Observing is just there as a test of the theory guessed. The observation might throw up a problem. In which case, let's come up with an explanation of why this problem exists. Was the observation made poorly? Was the methodology used to generate the observation? There was a problem with the telescope, perhaps, or the microscope, or the Large Hadron Collider, with your scientific instrument, with your eyes, You look up in the sky and you think you've seen a UFO. Ah, observation. Well, no. You've seen something up there. It doesn't mean there's aliens flying from another galaxy here to Earth. Then you've got a theory. And now we need observations to rule that out, possibly. We need alternatives. We have a whole bunch of alternative um, uh, hypotheses about what that thing could have been in the sky. And you need ways of ruling out all the other things, like... Human-made aircraft, Venus, shooting star, or meteor, any number of things, weather balloon. On that list, yeah, sure, let's throw the intergalactic space traveler. But absent anything else, why we're jumping to that one, I don't know. But you know, this is the this is what passes for the way in which people think science is done. And if they think they continue to see night after night after night after night uh, particular lights in the sky, they're becoming more and more confident that their favorite theory is more likely to be true. This is the Bayesian way of thinking. And so therefore, tomorrow, they're going to see the same lights in the sky. Aha, aliens are traveling from the other side of the galaxy or something like that. So David talks about modern day philosophers as perhaps not being inductivists in the old sense. I think some are when it comes to Bayesianism, some kind of are. They, they 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 worry about you know how to justify as true their theories. If anything, if there's anything to go by with the modern movement of Bayesianism, that, that that's what people think okay, they've only been fed a certain way of. They're not philosophers to begin with. Okay, many people who, who title themselves styled Bayesians today in the rationalist community, um, they read about Bayesianism. That's it. That's a blinkered view. Never considered anything more broadly in philosophy or epistemology it's just bayesian reasoning and it's mathematical and i love maths because maybe they're coders and or they're engineers and it's, so they, they they understand the the, the basic ideas so hey it's a formula it can be you can even code it in the computer and it can spit out numbers for you and it can be used for so-called machine learning even though it's not learning but it can extrapolate data and it'll even help your robot navigate around hey works Works for generating theories. Now it works for basis theorem. Works for specific things. But I've got whole episodes on this. Look at the Steven Pinker uh, most recent uh, episode on that, all about basis theorem. For that, I've been talking about it a lot recently. So I won't go back down that road now. Where basis theorem can narrowly be used, and where it certainly isn't a philosophy of science or an epistemology. Okay, so that that's what we're talking about here. But there are philosophers who are not inductivists in the old-fashioned sense, David says. But I'll continue. He writes, quote, They do not try to obtain or justify any theories inductively. They do not expect the sky to fall in, but they do not know how to justify that expectation. Philosophers today yearn for this missing justification. They no longer believe that induction would provide it, yet they have an induction-shaped gap in their scheme of things, just as religious people who have lost their faith suffer from a God-shaped gap in their scheme of things. But in my opinion, there is little difference between having an X-shaped gap in one scheme of things and believing in X. Hence, to fit in with the more sophisticated conception of the problem of induction, I wish to redefine the term inductivist, to mean someone who believes that the invalidity of inductive justification is a problem for the foundations of science. Pausing there my reflection... Just on the God-shaped gap thing. Yeah, so religious people who lose their faith have a God-shaped gap. You see this all the time, especially in morality. say something controversial here. Altruism and this idea of collectivism, it's a tribal idea. So religions inherited this idea that the tribe is more important than the individual. Obviously, that was a thing in the tribe. Religions took it on and then whole political movements have taken it on. Now, atheists who reject religion kind of. Atheists, we should say, who reject God and then think of themselves as very rational people because they've rejected God, tend not to reject many, many of the tenets of religion. Now, of course, they might become political activists and say, well, I hate the Catholic Church, for example, and I am very pro-abortion, let's say. So clearly I'm not a religious thinker. But many, many of these people will hold high this notion of altruism, self-sacrifice. Where does the concept of self-sacrifice being a virtue come from? Altruism is not generosity. I've written blog posts about this and podcasts about this before. People who reject God and reject mainstream religion, and by the way, I don't regard myself as a religious person, but I understand the fraught errors in simply rejecting religion and having nothing to replace it with. Because if you reject God and you reject mainstream religion, especially the one in which you were raised from mother's knee, and you have nothing to replace it with, it will be filled by everything that was in that religion and it will become a political ideology. For example, Christianity well teaches that the ultimate person is Jesus Christ, He sacrificed his life for the rest of humanity. That was the greatest thing that could have been done. He was altruistic. He spoke of altruism. Give up your wealth and follow him. This is the ideal that we are supposed to strive for. And many, many atheist people still endorse the lessons. They might reject God, reject that Jesus perform miracles, reject that Jesus is the son of God, or perhaps even reject that Jesus ever existed. But insofar as he had wisdom there, they still read wisdom into the New Testament of that kind. Namely, sacrifice yourself. Don't merely be generous. Give and give and give until it hurts a little. The best thing you can do is to have your life set up so that it is for the service of others. Again, I am not saying don't be generous. I am not saying don't be kind and compassionate. You should. Be generous, kind, and compassionate. Absolutely. Some of the most wonderful experiences people can have in life is helping others. Absolutely. But what Christianity does in particular is it goes a step further. It says, yeah, do all that, but continue to do it until it hurts. Continue to do it until a little blood is drawn, until you begin to suffer a little. It's in the suffering that you actually find true virtue and your true calling Now, Buddhism speaks that, you know, all life is suffering, which I disagree with. I think that suffering is just a problem that can be solved. And Christianity says, if you suffer, this is great. It's your cross to bear. You should be seeking the cross to bear. You should be suffering. You should be sacrificing yourself for others. If you've got a million dollars to give away, don't invest it in a company. That's not going to do the greatest good. Give it away. Give it to a charity where it will absolutely help people. Now, am I arguing against charity? No. What I'm saying is it's not evil to invest that million dollars. And I'm not saying it's better to put it into charity. Give it to charity if you want. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to help people in particular charities. You could invest it in a company like Apple, which is going to produce even better iPhones that are going to help millions and millions of people be lifted out of poverty. That's literally what happens with technology. And you would be a part of that if you invest in some corporations. Giving it away to poor people now is also going to help them. Yeah, absolutely. But why a Christian, for example, would say, no, absolutely the only way of helping people, the only way is to give it to charity because that's going to hurt you. You're not going to earn anything from that except a good feeling. But investing money, well, you're going to make a profit. You'll also feel good. And in fact, you're not supposed to feel good if you do that, by the way. If you invest in a company that does really well, you're not supposed to feel good and virtuous You're not supposed to. You're supposed to feel a little bit guilty. You haven't sacrificed anything. The opposite. But why shouldn't you feel good if the company you invest in does well and is selling products to people and giving services to people, lifting the entire state of civilization to a higher level of flourishing? That's a great thing. That's a virtuous thing. People have a God-shaped gap. People have a religion-shaped gap. So atheists often just have the morality of Christianity. They endorse almost everything about Christianity except the God bit, except the Jesus bit. Although well, the example of Jesus they think is good. Yeah? Uh, effective altruism is absolutely that. It's absolutely that. It is the modern version of Christianity without Jesus. It's a way of, here, give away everything, follow me, and then you will achieve bliss and happiness and enlightenment. I am not saying effective altruists are not doing good work. They are. What I'm saying is that altruism is not the most effective way of doing good. Generosity is a higher calling because there are many ways in which to be generous. Investing in people rather than simply giving it away. Investing in people means you may get a return. You might not as well. You might lose it all. But hey, with charity, you absolutely lose it all in the sense that it's gone from you to someone else. Is that bad? No, it's not bad. But in the same way that investing in someone who's got a good idea as a startup and makes lots of money and you make lots of money is also not bad for you. It's no less good just because you make a profit. But I'm getting off topic. Okay, That's a rant on precisely this thing of some people who lose their faith suffer from a God-shaped gap. That's what David's talking that kind of thing. People want to believe in something, believe in the higher power of some sort. And in particular, I want to have a morality that is basically just traditional religion. There are alternatives to that. Look up, I think my my blog post is um, Christian Atheists, something like that. Uh, I've got a podcast out there about it as well. Let's keep going. Um, I'm only going to read a little bit more and then we get to the actual discussion itself, which I'm going to leave for part two. So this is just the introduction, lengthier than I thought. So David has just said quote and I'll read on a bit further. I wish to redefine the term inductivist to mean someone who believes that the invalidity of inductive justification is a problem for the foundations of science. In other words, an inductivist believes there is a gap which must be filled if not by a principle of induction, then by something else. Some inductivists do not mind being so designated, others do, so I shall call them crypto-inductivists. Most contemporary philosophers are crypto-inductivists, What makes matters worse is that, like many scientists, they grossly underrate the role of explanation in the scientific process. So do most Popperian anti-inductivists, who are thereby led to deny that there is any such thing as justification, even tentative justification. This opens up a new explanatory gap in their scheme of things. The philosopher John Worrell has dramatized the problem as he sees it in an imaginary dialogue between Popper and several other philosophers entitled why both Popper and Watkins fail to solve the problem of induction. This setting is the top of the Eiffel Tower. One of the participants, the floater, decides to descend by jumping over the side instead of using the lift in the normal way. The others try to persuade the floater that jumping off means certain death. They use the best available scientific and philosophical arguments, but the infuriating floater still expects to float down safely and keeps pointing out that no rival explanation can logically be proved to be preferable on the basis of past experience. Pause there, my reflection. Yeah, of course. It's the wrong question, isn't it? The floater is right that no rival explanation can logically be proved to be preferable. Yeah, we can't logically prove it. But science isn't about logical proof. And if you're looking for that bar, the bar is so high, you're never going to meet it. What we're after is good explanations. We're after actual knowledge. We're after a situation in which we literally do have no rivals. We've got one explanation. This is the explanation. This is what's going to happen. Is it absolutely certain? No. Is it known to be true? No. Is it probably true? No. It's just the only explanation we have. And if you want to rely on something else, in particular you want to rely on a bad explanation, that's on you. The rest of us are not going to jump off the Eiffel Tower because we've got a good explanation. It's a very, very good explanation. It's been... Tested in many, many different ways and many different situations. I am justified in not jumping off, justified in the sense that I should not jump off the Eiffel Tower and thinking I will not float to the ground because this best only existing scientific explanation of how gravity works and how masses in a gravitational field behave tells me, enables me to predict, I'm going to hit the ground i can hit the ground uh, in such a way that I'll absolutely be dead. So you, Mr. Floater, can rely on some other explanation, a non-explanation, but it doesn't enable you to make a prediction. Your non-explanation is just an assertion that you're going to float. It's prediction without explanation, explanationless science. By what mechanism are you going to float down? You have none. I have one that tells me that what happens when you jump off the Eiffel Tower is you fall towards the ground at increasing velocity and you splat and all your bones break and you die. Uh, This is what general relativity tells us. So what David goes on to say is, quote, I believe that we can justify our expectation the floater would be killed. The justification, always tentative, of course, comes from the explanations provided by the relevant scientific theories. To the extent those explanations are good, it is rationally justified to rely on the predictions of corresponding theories. So in reply to Worrell, I now present a dialogue of my own set in the same place, end quote. And I won't begin reading the dialogue now. But that that last paragraph there is a lot of use of the word justified. And I think we can just do away with it. I think we can just sort of say something along the lines of, We know the floater would be killed. And when I say no, what I mean is tentatively, fallibly, uh, uh, relying upon our best explanation. So I would phrase it something like, I know that the floater would be killed. This claim comes from the explanations provided by the relevant scientific theories. To the extent those explanations are good, it is right to rely on the predictions of the corresponding theories. So in reply to Worrell and our present dialogue, of my own, at no point do I need to talk about justified. At no point do I need to use the word justification. I think David would be the same now because it just introduces some confusion. Not because at that time in 1997 was he ever wrong in saying this because you need to speak in the language of your opponents if you're, if the, you're going to make any headway quite often. Certainly I've learned this. Uh, Unless you're willing to grant certain vocabulary, there's no common ground. and They just don't know what you're getting at. So when I try and say, you know, try and explain what knowledge is or what the phrase I know means, well, I have to begin where they are. People will say, oh, but you don't really know that. And so I have to concede that where they're coming from is when they say and they emphasize, no, you don't know that. What they mean is I am certain that. Okay, and so I will say to them, well, no, you can't be certain of that. I'm not certain of it either. Whereas what I really think is, of course, certainty isn't a thing. You can't. There's no such thing as certainty. There's this feeling, right? There's this emotion you think that you label certainty. But even then, that doesn't mean that it's absolutely true. Okay, so there's all this deep ocean of, of, of background knowledge. But you have to meet someone who's coming from the completely opposite perspective. You have to meet them somewhere. So you have to grant them you know, certain words and try and bring them with you for as long as they're interested in being brought with you. And if they're not interested and they give up, well, there you go. You don't have to force people into it. You know? it's, a, it's, it's an interesting debate for as long as people want to have it. An interesting discussion, I should say, explaining worldviews to one another so that's what we're doing and that's what David is doing here so I look forward to the next episode where we go through some of the dialogue I don't think I'll go through the entire dialogue but um, I think this is a really good chapter of trying finally to undo this idea of induction we've now of course got the problem of Bayesianism. So how much inroad we're making, I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to tell. And what's the real-life consequence? The real-life consequence is maybe machine learning and artificial intelligence would do better if they weren't so reliant on Bayesianism. Maybe there are better ways to go. Maybe, you know, even like AGI, obviously, artificial general intelligence, clearly cannot possibly be based on Bayesian inference generation. That's clearly a misconception. We can rule that out. But I don't know enough about just mainstream normal AI to know whether or not doing away with Bayesianism there might be a good idea. That might be a a bit of a dead end. There could be better ways of producing so-called intelligent systems, just sophisticated computers, that, that do a different job of kind of guessing and conjecturing in some way. I don't know how. That's for other people. I do what I do. Other people do what they do. But philosophy is important here. Epistemology is important here. If we want technology to be better... People have to understand the way knowledge is generated because that's how progress happens. Not merely in the rarefied areas of philosophy and science, but in engineering and technology and just everywhere in life. But that's enough for now. <laughs> Until next time. Bye bye. <laughs>